Although our logo is cute as hell, please be aware we deal with some truly heinous content in this podcast. Listener discretion is advised. This is a podcast where we discuss law and order SVU under a much-needed queer and feminist lens. I'm Talia. And I'm V. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And today we're discussing episode six of season 13, True Believers. Let's get into this motherfucking episode. (laughs) We are introduced to a piano player, Sarah Walsh, as she gets groceries and rides the elevator with a presumably a stranger that then rapes her at gunpoint in a really weirdly acted, weirdly paced cold open before cutting to Sarah telling her story to Benson. She tells Benson that the incident had happened the day before because she had a piano jury the afternoon after the rape that she couldn't miss. Credits. That was a rough cold opening. It really was. I I want to say that it's a lot longer a cold opening than we're used to and because we see, we see Sarah getting groceries and we see her basically moving through a bunch of the people like outside in the building and there's a lot of pleasantries and you know Sarah seems happy like there's a lot of people opening doors for each other so and I think I think it's worth mentioning this because later on we get a lot of questions of like oh why did you why did you open the door for for this guy her response is weird to, we'll get to that oh, but yeah. her response is weird to that as well yeah I've got that <laughs> noted down too yeah all right so after the credit they make a note to say that she showered straight after and that the perp used a condom and flushed it she's getting checked out and she mentions that they might find his dna on the plastic cup they gave you know she was trying to think of dna and then benson offhandedly mentions actually the bottle would have been better and she says Mm -hmm. i'll remember that for next time you know very like yeah as you would be that's a fucked up thing to say yeah and and to to the, you know the writer's credit benson apologizes for that yeah but uh what a what a thing to say to somebody yeah yeah finn and rollins are tearing sarah's apartment apart trying to collect evidence the crisis counselor informs sarah that she has the option to not file charges because sarah showered and there's no sign of physical violence and that prosecution is emotionally grueling. Benson practically drags the crisis counselor out by her hair and reads her the filth. I find it really interesting that they added this scene considering what actually does end up happening in court. Mm. Benson still gives Sarah the crisis counselor's business card. Sarah is still in shock and is horrified at the state of her house when she gets home. Benson tells her she'll be there for every step of the way and then fucking bolts out of her apartment. (laughs) She sure does. (laughs) Benson sees in the camera in the elevator and gets the tape and takes it back to the precinct. They see Sarah talking to her presumed rapist. Sarah's boyfriend goes to visit her and she's cleaning her apartment, but she tells him she has bed bugs and he accepts that without question. And he he seems very sniveling. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, he seems very repulsed by the bed bugs too. Finn and Rollins are stopping and frisking based on the elevator photo. Sarah is at a bar having a beer when she sees the guy who raped her outside and she freaks and calls Benson. Benson and Amaro drive Sarah around until they find the guy and Amaro and Benson tell him to stop but the dude bolts they chase him into an apartment complex and into an apartment where the dude Michael doesn't manage to close the door in time as Amaro busts in Michael's mum and wife or girlfriend Mm. and 
kid are screaming. Michael drops a gun under the couch, which Amara retrieves. They drive by with Sarah, and she confirms that Michael is the guy that raped her. Michael is being represented by a state-appointed lawyer who can't even bring up the right case that's being tried. Michael's mum walks in with a new lawyer, Bayard Ellis, Andre fucking Brower. Oh, yes. <laughs> Sarah is worried Michael will get bail. Benson introduces Sarah to district attorney cutter who is now involved because they're batshit scared of bad ellis mm. and have to vet all of sarah's details they ask her why did you hold the door for him and she says i didn't want him to think i was racist this is a very weird thing for her to say because i'm fairly sure if you watch it back like she didn't hear, see who it was yeah she you uh. hear hold the door and she just holds it instinctively like it didn't seem like a racially motivated, motivated anything yeah yeah. yeah. Also, something that I don't know if it was implied, but something that I noticed was you have a very set notion of what happened, right? Mm. Because you see it at the beginning. But you also see her when she's first introduced in the present, it's that she's been telling the story to Benson. Mm. So what you see at the beginning is her account of what happened. Not That's exactly a very good point. Happened. I hadn't I hadn't thought of that at all. Yeah, that that struck me as a bit weird the way they introduced it because then afterwards all you can think of was like, well, is that actually what happened? Mm. I found that interesting the way that they framed that. Mm. Munch explains Bayard Ellis's history of getting drug kingpins off, and now he works on the side of social justice after winning a huge amount of money. Mm. Munch sends a team out to find out dirt before the other side does. Sarah doesn't want, to t- want anyone to know her boyfriend is her piano teacher and that she didn't tell him about the rape. Amaro talks to her teacher, who is very sus. They ask Sarah when the last time she had sex was, and she says two weeks. Finn and Rollins let Benson know that the night before the rape, Sarah was at a bar drinking a bunch and flirting with some guy. Cutter asks if she if she went home with a guy, and Sarah says no. Sarah tells her boyfriend she was raped, and then the guy kind of makes it about him, and she freaks out and says, this isn't about you. Munch and Bayard Ellis meet, which is pretty funny, because the character of Munch comes from the show Homicide Life on the Streets. Andre Brower was one of the main characters of Homicide. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. So it's funny that he's just like, have we met? And... <laughs> Munch is just like, yeah, so I thought that was funny. Mm. Bayard wants to go through the elevator tape and the reports on the stop and frisks. Cutter gives Amaro the second degree about the gun bust and Amaro gets super defensive. And this, I think this is the first time, I mean, besides when he goes off at the guy that nearly rapes Rollins, the the Mm. twin, this is the first time you see Amaro in a really, like, chill the fuck out, my dude. Like, he's, he's... He goes from zero to a hundred on the defensive scale. Yeah. And I think this is one of the first times that you're like, oh, he's got a bit of a temper there. (laughs) Yeah. And I I, am flashing forward a little bit, but I actually quite like that. um, I think it's at the end of this episode when uh, Amaro is sort of dealing with like having been what uh, held accountable for this, that like Munch is like, oh, okay, here's what you should do. And And I kind of like um, Munch is like a daddy figure. Well, it's funny because they don't really mention it, but this is that Cragen is kind of starting to 
like the actor uh, Dan Florek is starting to phase out of the show. I think he mm. went into retirement. So he's starting to phase out. So they're giving Munch, Kragen's like Daddy Kragen. So they're giving Munch the reins a bit because he's sergeant. Like, so mm. he's the highest ranked or whatever mm. and and he genuinely likes amaro as well so like presumably finn has taken roland's i think they because everyone noticed that olivia was big and bitch <laughs> <laughs> so like munch has kind of taken amaro under his wing as because it's been this is like the second or third time that munch and amaro have had like a heart to heart or whatever mm. and it is like again because this is a fantasy <laughs> it's okay yeah well this is what you should have done and i'm sure that does not happen in real life because otherwise yeah. it wouldn't keep motherfucking happening yeah cutter is a dick to amara amara is a dick to cutter mm. i like the line that munch says of like put him away <laughs> we're all on the same team cutter again says something dumb that i'm like oh god he says it it won't only be open season on the da's office but it'll be open season on the nypd and it's like my dude it's always open season yeah. on both your offices because you're both shit yeah, like, I, I had exactly the same thought. I'm like, pretty much every episode opens with somebody going, now you know the NYPD is under fire. Like, yeah. yeah. Like, it's always under fire because <laughs> you keep doing awful shit. <laughs> Amara goes to check with Benson that they're on the same page about the gun, but is disappointed to find that Benson didn't see the gun and is not willing to lie. She also defends Cutter. I don't like Cutter. I feel like Cutter is is like a nothing character, but they mm. really like play him up like if he's going to play a big role, but he gets kicked out mm. for the next couple of episodes, actually. Benson and Sarah get notifications about Michael Wedmore making bail. I think Bayard Ellis pays his bail. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Michael's partner is waiting for Michael and she's really happy to see him. Sarah goes to her parents' house to feel safe. Benson burns her beads. <laughs> it's not beads, it's pasta. Um, <laughs> I, I have I have some, some thoughts about this because when she goes back to cooking, she's like, because she's cooking these like humongous rigatoni and she's yeah. so distraught about the rapist getting out on bail. She just chucks the pan into the sink. And like, first of all, how fucking dare you get rid of pasta <laughs> like that? But, like, second, yeah. a hot pan in the sink, Olivia? Are you for real? Yeah. yeah. Like, like, I get what they were trying to do, but it seems so fucking overdramatic. Yeah. Especially um, because, like, my my response to, like, bad news is to just, like, eat. this falls apart <laughs> <laughs> into my mouth, not into just the sink. Double fists of cheese. <laughs> <laughs> and, yes, that's even with being lactose intolerant. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> that's why you and I are the same person and it's scary <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know why I wrote beans I must have been really late but yeah I wrote Benson burns her beans and is pissed <laughs> Sarah's mum drives her to class and gives her like mom guilt about not talking to, her, mm. to them but Sarah shuts that shit down and walks out yeah. Munch and Cutter inform the team that Bayard Ellis is challenging the gun bust and the stop and frisk Bayard fights hard and manages to get the gun bust in put into question but the identification of michael by sarah is upheld amaro is pissed off at benson for not lying on his behalf like this is another thing of like amaro just shut the fuck up like yeah. he just wanted her to lie and he <laughs> makes it sound like oh some kind some partner you are or whatever like you know he makes he says sarcastically like thanks a lot partner yeah and it's like well watch you wanted her to lie mm. yeah that's fucked up benson tries to reason with bayard but is i hate this interaction because she's so tunnel visioned not seeing what bayard is trying to tell her mm. like i know we're supposed to think that bayard ellis is the bad guy because olivia's supposed to be the good guy but what he's saying is true if they would have done their job properly 
this wouldn't have been an issue and they would have caught the rapist. The problem mm. is that their investigation relied on institutional racism. Mm. And when he mentions about there's a higher rate of black men that, that get accused and, and prosecuted, she, like, scoffs. Yeah. And I, oh, man, that pissed me off. <laughs> that pissed me off so much. So basically he's just like, your investigation was dodgy. And she's just like, but the rape victim is like, well, then do your fucking job. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's that's all interesting. Sarah's dad is pleading with Sarah to talk to her mum, and Sarah breaks down in his arms. At this point, you think he's a good dad. Later on, you think he's a piece of shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Warner tells Benson that they found semen on Sarah's bed that was fresh, 24 hours fresh, mm. but wasn't Michael's or her boyfriend's. Cutter and Benson interrogate Sarah about the dude she was with beforehand and ask her if he was black. She says yes. They find the elevator footage and are pissed that she held back this piece of information because they asked her multiple times. Mm. They have to inform Baird Ellis about this new information. Michael tells the jury that he's never owned a gun and that he helped Sarah with her groceries and that Sarah then came on to him but he's such a good dude that he didn't have sex with her because he loves his girlfriend. <laughs> Bayard Ellis tears down Sarah's story and shows the jury the dude she slept with the night before and had lied about it. Her shitty parents in the seats looking all parentish. Mm-hmm. They find him not guilty on the gun charge and not guilty on the rape charge. Sarah's dad shows his true racist colours. Sarah is pissed and Benson tries to calm her down, but everything sounds empty. She she tells her healing begins with someone bearing witness. I saw you, I believe you, but like Sarah goes into like full catatonia. Yeah. Baird and Olivia talk about being true believers, which is the name of the episode, obviously. Olivia still doesn't get it, but accepts Ellis's olive branch about coaching a girls' soccer team. Another oh, fucking sorry. depressing dick wolf. Uh, so, so is that what he was saying? Like, c- come and coach my girls' soccer league or whatever? Or no, I think he was more like, our jobs are fucked up. The way that I blow off steam is I coach this team. You should come for whatever reason, to join in, like, the community outside of these horrible fucking stories we deal with. At least that's what I got. Okay, because, yeah, because that makes way more sense because by the end of that episode, like, I've made – I've got a lot to go into, but that the the end of that episode just threw me because it just basically looked like, you know, they're having a really good conversation, similar to what we were talking about before, like, Ellis has some really good notes and if they'd just done their job properly, et cetera, et cetera. But then – it seems to come out of the blue to go like, hey, you, you want to go play softball? And because mm. that's what I thought was happening. I thought he was just like, do you want to go play softball with my girls? Oh, and does he say softball? I wrote soccer. I, I Look, I have no idea. <laughs> no, you're probably right. It's probably softball because they wouldn't have, I don't know. Yeah, the sport. <laughs> the sport ball. She still doesn't get it though. And that's what, what pisses me off is that, he isn't attacking her like mm. he isn't like it, that doesn't piss me off i'm saying he isn't attacking her but she's taking it like an attack yeah and he even compliments her he's just like i wish other cops were like you that cared this yeah. much yeah. And that's that's where it stems from as well, where he's like, okay, this person genuinely cares about the victim. And that's like that's the whole idea, that they're both true believers of what they represent. Yeah. So he is a true believer that he will defend the rights of his people and will give people the benefit of the doubt because institutional racism won't allow that. Mm. And she's a true believer that she will believe all victims. Like, she will stand by victims no matter what, even if mm. it's to the detriment of other institutions. Mm. They have a common ground that they're both true believers. And I think the olive branch is more like, I understand what it's like to be 
alone in that situation. Mm. Therefore, this is how I decompresses, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think and she does take it. Mm, so. Yeah, she does. Yeah, and I, I think it's. This is why I'm. I've been so excited to do this podcast with you, is because you you are providing a viewpoint that I I guess I hadn't considered. Because when I I felt quite strongly about this episode, right? Because mm. I felt initially that the issues inherent with systematic racism was sort of shoehorned in a bit. That's that's how it came across to me. Mm. Maybe that's because uh, issues of sexual assault is something that, you know, I hold very near and dear to my heart, so I had some blinders on in that respect, but it, it's in hearing your talking about how, you know, because I, I had not even considered that we were getting Sarah's story in the beginning as opposed to actually seeing events. That's that's just what I picked up from it. I can't mm. guarantee that that's what the writers and the director was going for, but that's how it read to me because straight after the what had happened, you get that moment of like Sarah, Sarah, mm. and just like oh yeah, like if she was remembering as she was telling the story. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I think that's a very valid. Uh, way to look at it because I mean we're we're probably never going to know what was intended there and but they do you know they do mention some very valid things like regarding persons of color within issues like this like they they mention that you know cross-cultural perp ID is notoriously difficult with you know between a white and a person of color perp but it did feel like initially that it was yeah just shoehorned in and I didn't it felt that it was it didn't know what it wanted to be as an episode but hearing your retelling of it hearing your viewpoint of it and you know getting your what you were talking about with Ellis it does make a lot more sense and i think i i have just missed the point of, <laughs> at least at least with um the issues like the issues of people of colour here because I have so much, so much to say about rape victims and how they're held and what this episode said about that. Mm-hmm. Um, which which is which is valid as well, though. Like, mm. there's no winner here. At the end of the episode, and, and the thing is, I don't, don't even take that as bad that you didn't see this other side either because that's what the episode is also pushing yeah. you towards because our hero is Olivia. Mm. Our hero is the SVU. They are our heroes, and therefore anybody that challenges them when we know, inherently, I guess, we know that they're good people. First of all, that Andre Brower is a fucking badass actor. Like, he mm. he plays every character, like, from, from comedy, like Brooklyn Nine-Nine, to his more serious acting. He is a genuinely good actor. And Mm. you can tell that what he's saying in this particular episode is something that he believes in as well because he's a very outspoken activist. Mm. So it's very interesting because I think that when I first watched this episode, like when it first aired, I was defensive of Olivia and Amaro. Mm. Mm. And uh, it's only now, like I've seen this episode maybe total four times ever and two has been in the last week (laughs) and and i found it interesting the way that they were portraying bayard especially with what has happened since especially obviously in america you think oh like what's this guy's just trying to railroad a a victim Mm. like he's trying to get this guy off who is obviously guilty but then like neither of those people like neither sarah nor michael is a good teller of stories because they both lied Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. they both lied and and you don't know what the fuck actually happened. Mm-hmm. If, if you take the beginning as in that it was Sarah's version of the story, then you have then at the end of the episode you have no fucking clue what actually happened. Mm-hmm. What's true and what's not. And that's really frustrating, <laughs> but but I understand why they did that for the episode. Like story-wise, I like this episode better than the last one. Oh yeah, yeah. 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 But it's also a good, like, you, you know, you make a good point that, like, initially when you watch this, you, you know, you feel defensive of Olivia, like you said, because they are the main characters. We know inherently they are the good guys. But also, you know, we've mentioned before that any kind of defense lawyer or somebody else that the, the duality of our main characters, we have, they, they have come in coded as they're the bad guy. Um, mm-hmm. And this is like, well, at least, at least in what we've been watching, I think this might be the first time where we've seen, you know, Ellis or anyone not be inherently the bad guy, mm. even though he's on the opposite, you know, quote unquote, side to our main characters. Yeah. And Bayard comes in a few more times afterwards as well. Like he becomes mm. for this season and next season. I think he's he's on a few more times and he they actually start calling him in because mm. they know that he'll take cases that other people don't want to take. Mm. So, so I'm, I mean, and I'm telling you that not to ruin anything, but more so because they acknowledge that this character is inherently a good character too. Mm. And I think that's why they do the thing at the end of like, all right, let's put all of this, the morals, the grey areas, let's put all of this aside. Let's, let's meet in a common ground, I guess. Mm. Mm. And and it's just nice that at the end, at least in that, Olivia does see eye to eye to him, and and she like grouchily, but she still takes the card. Mm. <laughs> so it's mm. implied that maybe you know that that they form a friendship despite being on oh. on opposite ends of this case. Well, that that is nice to hear. I'm glad that we see more <laughs> of Captain Holt. Uh, so. And it's probably worth mentioning here that how often this kind of stuff is left up to the person of colour in in this instance, where in issues where racism is inherent or it's it, it almost becomes expected that the person of colour is the one to reach an olive branch in, you know, to be the one yeah. that's... And that shouldn't happen. And mm. I hope, you know, I'd like to hope in reality it's not. But, yeah. And but, it, it, but it is. It is, <laughs> But yeah. it, frankly, like, flat out yeah. it is. Yeah, and God, that must be fucking exhausting. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, but, um, oh, sorry, sorry, go on. No, you go, sorry. All I was going to say was, like, moving it on, I have a lot to say about this case and how it portrays, like, the rape victim and, and whatnot, but perhaps we can talk first about, like, one, if you've got anything else to say, but also, two, about if this was based on any real-life cases. No, so this this is actually... It was just, there's so much, (laughs) there's so much stuff that they basically just, you know, mashed a bunch of stuff together to make an original story. What I did kind of want to touch on, Mm -hmm. uh, so I just wanted to do like a really, really quick summary of what the stop and frisk thing is. Mm -hmm. Yes, please. Uh, Stop and frisk was basically, it, it started off with security guards being able to stop people that were acting suspicious around mostly like government buildings, but it, it became like a security guard thing of stop and frisk. 
if somebody's acting suspicious. Obviously, this went fucking nuts with, like, terrorist stuff. People were doing the stop and frisk thing for any old thing. The problem with stop and frisk is that it is a massive part of institutional racism. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I think a lot of people don't quite understand that institutional racism doesn't mean that everybody within the system is racist. It means that if you remove every single racist from this space, the actual system will still be racist because it's racist on an institutional level, even Mm. if there's no racists around. I heard a really good allegory for what institutional racism is that just I thought was very simple. If you imagine that a really ableist person builds a hotel, so you've got, you know, no no ramps, you know, nothing for wheelchairs. It's in- intended to keep disabled people out say this hotel many years pass and you know that owner dies a horrendous death and it's wonderful for everybody yay but the next person that buys that hotel is not ableist they are still working within a system that is against disabled people yeah so uh stop and frisk has a really like spotty history obviously so i mean yeah look i don't like biden either but um (laughs) he, he was one of the big proponents of stop and frisk Hmm. In the early 90s, I'm going to read you a little bit from uh, civilrights.org, the Leadership Conference Education Fund. It says, overwhelming evidence suggests that the policy is used as a method of racially profiling and harassing black and Latino citizens. Minorities and many civil rights organizations, such as the Center for Constitutional Rights and the NAACP, have voiced strong opposition to the policy. In 1999, blacks and Latinos made up 50% of New York's population, but accounted for 84% of the city's Hmm. stop and frisk. Statistics have changed little in more than a decade. According to the court opinion, between 2004 and 2012, the New York Police Department made 4.4 million stops under the citywide policy. More than 80% of those stops were black and Latino people. The likelihood a stop of an African-American New Yorker yielded a weapon was half that of white New Yorkers stopped. Mm. And the likelihood of finding contraband on an African-American who was stopped was one third of that of white New Yorkers stopped. Mm. So it's had a spotty thing going on because in 2013 there was outcry of this shit is is fucked <laughs> like mm-hmm. basically and there was a judge uh, judge shira a shinelin ruled that nypd stop and frisk tactics violate the u.s constitution's fourth amendment prohibition of unreasonable searches and seizures but by that point the damage had been done you know mm. again Bayard Ellis in this in this situation had a point. Mm. If they had done it properly, if they had okay, so say for example, if they had all right, they had identified Michael that he looked like the guy from the elevator. They should have mm. brought him in, put him into a proper lineup mm. for Sarah to identify, not on the street where he's being held in handcuffs by the other officers. Mm. And the other thing, obviously, is the gun thing. Technically, Amaro didn't do anything wrong because he did genuinely see a gun. Mm -hmm. But what he should have done is, okay, there is a gun there. Leave an officer there. Mm. Like, leave Benson there. Bring in, make sure that you have a warrant to search the house and then search the house. Mm. The fact that only difference here is that it went under the couch. If it would have fallen, hit the floor, it, everyone would have seen it. He would have been able to claim it as gun. <laughs> <laughs> that's the that's the technical legal term. Oh my God. No, I was like distracted by my kid coming out. <laughs> yeah, that whole Amaro thing could have been handled better. But but like you were saying before as well, in that situation, 
in a fantasy world, obviously, it happens. Amaro gets held accountable and Munch is like, well, you should have done this. Mm. And in a perfect world, that's what would have happened. <laughs> yeah. But instead, everybody held fast. They reckon they did a good job and then were really pissed off when someone was just like, actually, this whole thing was pretty fucking mouse clubby, you know, like it was pretty amateurish. Mm. And because, again, we're expected to root for the SVU, we're like, this motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> about Ella. But yeah, there's a there's a lot going on here. And I think this kind of nuance doesn't happen in the earlier episodes. I think this is specifically the so the showrunner for this episode is Warren Light, who in that John Oliver thing was the one that was basically like we wanted to do a series oh. about the Innocence Project, but mm. there's no way that that would get greenlit mm. by Dick Wolf because Dick Wolf, you know, sucks off cops. So, mm. so yeah. So Warren Light, even though he tends to waffle on a little bit, which is ironic considering what we're doing right now, but like, <laughs> <laughs> like he does tend to make things go on for a bit longer than they should on screen. I think he also brings another level of grey into this world that, that it, it needed, I mm. think. Like, it very much needed, and it very much starts from this season, which is another reason why I wanted to start from this season. Not only because in Barber Watch we've got 19 episodes to go. <laughs> 19 episodes? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yep, we're in the teens, baby. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be so anticlimactic when he, when he comes on and you're like, this guy? <laughs> No, I'm <laughs> he likes swinging uh, my legs. I'm already <laughs> excited. I like for for I don't know if we've even said like uh, on on the show yet, but uh, Barbara is your favorite. I have not <laughs> seen any episodes with Barbara to my knowledge. <gasps> you haven't. I, I, I don't think yeah. I have. Like, I maybe I've seen an episode here or there and just not registered that that's that character. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but so I'm I'm pumped. I'm pumped to to know what this guy's deal is. <laughs> so 19 episodes to go after this one. <sighs> Exciting. Okay, what are your notes about the victim side of things? Mm, all right, so uh, so this I think this episode is quite well. Ooh, mm-hmm. What just happened then? Oh, I moved. Did I? Was it very obvious? It did sound. <laughs> I'll I'll send you the clip afterwards, but it sounded like you had a loofah up against the microphone and started shaking it vigorously. <laughs> All right, well, um, I didn't. But, uh, <laughs> loofah start, away. We can start that one again. Uh, okay, uh, stop laughing. We're going to talk about psychological trauma of rape. Oh dear. This has been brought up in episodes past and it will be brought up in episodes future. The notion of waiting to report and Mm. how or why that is used to discredit a victim. You know, because, again, we've mentioned it before, like sometimes it's not realising that, you know, what has happened is rape. Sometimes Mm. it's shame or feeling that you won't be believed. But we know now that psychological trauma experienced by a rape survivor. Uh, If anyone's interested, there's a bit documented under the term uh, rape trauma syndrome. But basically, it it details three common stages of reaction of a survivor. The first stage, uh, that's the acute stage. So that's what we see, uh, what's here, what like Sarah is going through. It usually lasts from like the rape to, you know, the first few days, but it's, it it varies. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, the acute stage, there are three common stages within the acute stage, and that is how like how the survivor reacts. So there are three common reactions. This is expressed, controlled, or disbelief. And controlled is what we're seeing in Sarah. Controlled is pretending nothing is wrong, the relative lack of emotional reaction, continuing on with daily life, you know, at, at least initially. Mm. Or and even thing- stopping herself when she has the outburst. Yes, absolutely. Mm. And the thing is, like, even in a controlled state, you are still, even when you're still convinced that you've convinced yourself that nothing happened, uh, you still experience the overwhelming, like, intense emotions of something is wrong and I am in crisis. And that is incredibly cognitively dissonant, like, really, like, a very, very confusing. And so not knowing not knowing what to do and essentially going on autopilot the the way Sarah has, like she you know, she showering is a whole other thing. Like you know, your your body has been your body has been violated. You want to get that off you. Showering makes mm. sense. Yeah. But, yeah. But going on, you know, go oh, I need to go to this recital, this thing that I've been planning for months, you know, practicing for four months. That's it's not an uncommon response to any kind of trauma, let alone rape. Basically, what I'm saying is not that we need another reason not to nitpick why survivors don't always come forward immediately or react the way we think they should. But the things that we're nitpicking aren't holes in victim stories. They're legitimate human reactions to trauma that like now are very well documented. And and it's, it's also very it's very absurd to expect a rape victim to react by the textbook definition of how they expect them to, especially in this show where the assumption is that they see rape every day and they see so much of it that I think that's what was supposed to be shown by Olivia being like, well, it should have, a bottle was better or whatever. It's like, it's so ingrained in what they see every day that they don't sometimes realise that a rape victim isn't going to react in a certain way. Like, Mm -hmm. people barely react in normal, quote-unquote, normal ways for non-traumatic things, let alone Mm -hmm. something, depending on who you are, how you were raised, what kind of personality you have, will have drastically different reactions from you. Absolutely. Um, So it's, it's interesting that they do still hold victims like they hold victims accountable for stuff that you can't explain there is so much to uh you know what we what we hold against victims of sexual assault and it's upsetting like you said that we have uh you know a a situation here where surely they'd be seeing the the large amount of the large variation in reactions and to not expect it i suppose is upsetting Mm. You mentioned as well the, the actually the bottle would be better line, um, mm. and you know, and, and we've already talked about how I, I actually think that's that's pretty good writing. Like like you just said, we mentioned that you know that's probably indicative of Olivia just going on autopilot from you know having mm. seen this day in day out. The I didn't particularly like this scene where you know her counselor lady comes in and whatnot. Yeah, for the, for the reasons bad. when yeah. But, I mean, mm. it is for the reasons we, we're not supposed to like it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But this this is what often gets termed the second rape. Yeah. Where, yeah. Yeah, you probably heard the term where, you know, this is another reason why people don't come forward is because they don't want to be interrogated by 
possibly well-meaning to possibly not so well-meaning people who are going to tell you, hey, there, you know, there's no point in filing for anything. There's no point in trying to prosecute. Mm, or, or no one's going to believe you. Or, yeah. Or because of your direct actions, we won't be able to to prosecute it. Like the thing that she says to her is, uh, because you showered and because there's no visible signs of violence, mm. this will be really hard to prosecute. And you're just kind of like well, shit, like, maybe I should have gotten him to punch me. Like, like you know, mm, you just, mm. it sucks because this is a really common thing that happens in real life. It's a really common thing that you hear from survivors of basically the a lot of them wish they hadn't bothered. Mm. And that's upsetting. That's upsetting that the system works actively against them. There was a report that was released about the special victims, the the real special victims unit in New York, Hmm. where there was large cases of specifically women that were re-victimized during Hmm. interrogation because it was, it was an interrogation of them. It wasn't like they weren't in the nice room. They were in the room of doom mm. and they were being basically treated like the criminal because they were being treated like if they were making something up. Mm. And then on top of that, and this was a small amount, but the fact that it happened at all, like burns my blood. There was, there was police officers that sexually assaulted the, victim. the, the victims. Oh, yeah. Mm. They're like, fuck <laughs> like, yeah how are you supposed to trust any system mm. that has that kind of statistic mm. like what the fuck like and and that's why like this episode you know we say that this show is a fantasy and stuff but this like the stuff that she has to deal with is is pretty real mm. is pretty real and, and again it's not one of my favorite ones <laughs> it's not a favorite episode by any stretch of the mind but like it is closer to a real case than you would find in, in like, as opposed to some of the other batshit ones that we mm. <laughs> that we will see and that mm. we've seen. But it's all it also makes it harder to watch, mm. which is interesting because I don't watch SVU for the realism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Like I don't, I don't watch SVU because I think that it's genuinely a good representation of what happens at the special victims unit, and that's what makes this episode hard to watch. That's, mm. that's what it is. Mm. Sorry, do, do you have other notes? Oh well, no. I mean, it's basically what you've just said. Like, I think we've 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 done pretty well summing up what I wrote. So I don't yeah. know how you got access to my notes, but right. <laughs> um. I'm telling you, with the same person, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I think I think the only other thing is that you know it's like going on from what you just said was that you know this is a much more real episode and uh, I suppose it's 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 a necessity what we are attempting to do here but at the same time we do have to understand that this is this is a fantasy show this is a show that we're watching for entertainment purposes and they have to find that balance between realism and not realism but like so you know we we talked about the ending about from her being told how difficult this would be to prosecute to her reaction when the perp is found uh, not guilty of both counts and i think that 
that it's, it's a credit to the actor um, because she was so good in this, like the, the reaction she had and how she was saying, you know, I would never have gone through this. You should, you know, like. This was so ugly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she says, this was so ugly. And like, you felt that. Yeah. That, well, I felt that. In no, my no, no, like, absolutely, absolutely. Story. While Olivia was well-meaning and, you know, there's some, you know, niceness, TV niceness to, you know, being <laughs> yeah. told I believe you and whatnot, that is going to mean neuron jack shit to a victim going through that. And, and that's, and you see that she just goes blank. Mm, like, mm. she that she did so well. And, like, and Olivia's just desperate at that point. Like, she just... Mm. She just doesn't want this girl to leave just absolutely gutted. Mm. Something that I wanted to mention, and I don't know if it's just me, mm. but the, so so the actress's name is Sofia Vas- Vasilieva, Vasilieva mm-hmm. who played Sarah Walsh. She was amazing. Mm. But the fact that she looks like a 12-year-old freaked me the fuck out from the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> I it was interesting. I I didn't remember this episode, but I must have seen it before because uh, I remember thinking at the beginning of this episode, oh, I've seen her before. I don't know. I don't remember what she's in, but she because she's supposed to be nineteen in the episode, yeah. but she yeah, she looks twelve. She she does, and it, she's very tiny too. Like mm. she's, I remember the first time I watched the episode, I was so confused for so long. I thought they were going to be like, she's a child prodigy or whatever, and mm. no, she's just a very tiny, young-looking nineteen-year-old supposedly. Mm. But that took me out of it a little bit a lot of the mm. time because, like, especially with scenes where, like, with the relationship with her teacher and stuff, that yes. looked weird. The fact that they. I mean, whether it was her recollection or not, or if it was what was actually happening, the fact that you see her face when she's being raped mm. that freaked me out because all I could think of is like, how old is this girl? Yeah, how old is this actress? Like, mm. what is what's going on right now? Yeah, she again, she did a really good job, but it 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 freaked me out. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Quite frankly, I, it freaked I, me. Out. I can't say it it freaked me out beyond just being like. Yo, why do you look like that? <laughs> um, but I think, oddly enough, I think the thing that just took me out the most was like you were saying just then about viewing her with her teacher. Like I, I assume there was supposed to be an age gap there, and I assume it was supposed to be you know potential red herring or something of okay, is he involved in some way? You know, there's a power dynamic there. But if you had seen her with somebody more her age wouldn't have been an issue but seeing her with a man that could that looked more or less like he could have been her father was very weird he says a few really weird things as well like when he's talking to i don't know if it's amaro or finn he says that people that have the better talent are people that come from Mm, like disadvantaged backgrounds yeah yeah and that she played insanely well uh, in her jury and then later he finds out that she was right like it was mm. just a very weird insinuation about you are a better player if you have trauma behind it mm-hmm. <laughs> what i'm sure there's there's like a different kind of passion involved with stuff but i don't think the it's like the whole a mother would never put a, a dirty nappy in a cooler <laughs> it's like a musician will never be good unless they go through shit tons of traumas. Like, what? Mm. 
Yeah, it it was a weird little, not quite throwaway, because then later on she says something else as well about how, oh, at least I'm, I'm playing, playing better. better than that. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I will say this about this episode, like maybe this is what contributed to me not seeing the episode for what it was, but there was so much that seemed to be put in there that could have led to something else, like, you know, this backstory of trauma influencing the way you play. There just seemed to be so much that could have gone down a different route. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it was it was a weird it was a weirdly paced episode too. Mm. Mm. It, I felt it very odd odd pacing. Mm. Anyway, do you have any other notes? No, I think I think that's me good. <laughs> that's you good? That's me good. <laughs> <laughs> they they could right. claim it as gun. <laughs> they could you know Gun. <laughs> Next week's episode is season 13, episode 7, Russian Brides. The little blurb on IMDb is In order to bring down a Russian mobster running an international prostitution kidnapping ring disguised as a Russian bride website, Kragen steps from behind the desk to go undercover as a John. <laughs> oh. oh, baby. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm not sure I've seen this episode, so that'll be interesting. It it it's a good one. It's a good one. Mm-hmm. I um, and it, this is the one that I'm telling you that it gets referenced back in what's what's to come. Oh, okay. <laughs> Ooh, la, la. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess all that's left to say is heinously yours. <laughs> XOXO. God damn it. <laughs> Damn it again! Oh, I can't, I can't stop. Help! Nineteen, nineteen episodes to Baba. Nineteen episodes to Baba. <laughs> da 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 da. All right, I'm stopping. <laughs> <laughs>